Coming into the 2019 season, there was certainly a sizable contingent of Sun Devil fans who thought that ASC would be lucky to reach a 500 record at year's end. In some regards, it was understandable to have that assertion, considering the fact that the team was starting a true freshman quarterback, still had some an- unanswered questions on the defensive line, and were going to present a front five that seemingly, in the blink of an eye, went from the most experienced unit on the team to one that was also highlighted by inexperience. Nonetheless, here we are near the midpoint of the season, and ASU heads into their bye week with a 4-1 mark following its second road win of the year against a ranked team. Should we now change our outlook for the 2019 Sun Devils? In this podcast, we will give you our midterm review of Arizona State and look ahead to what we can expect the rest of the season. And since we are entering the bye week, we're going to go off on a little tangent over here and discuss one of the hottest topics right now in college sports, a new California state law, which starting in 2023 will allow student-athletes attending colleges in that state to earn money on their likeness. Is this a long overdue ruling created by the inaction of the NCAA? And what are some of the possible implications that come with it? These topics and more will be covered in this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. I was living in a devil town. I didn't know it was a devil town. Oh Lord, it really brings me down about the devil town. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Devil's Junkies Podcast. I'm your host and devilsdigest.com publisher, Hood Rabino. And luckily, the first bye week for Arizona State falls just about halfway through the 2019 season, which gives us a great opportunity to review the team through its first five games and lay out the impressive aspects that we witness along the way, as well as the shortcomings that will need to be addressed the rest of the season. But before we take a macro view of what transpired for the first five weeks of 2019, We have to touch on the micro, namely what took place last Friday in Berkeley. Another week, another road game win for Arizona State over a ranked opponent, this time defeating number 15 Cal 24-17. And I'm sure the ASU fans who endured so many heartbreaking performances on the road can sure get used to this trend. Now, I learned my lesson after picking Arizona State to lose to Michigan State a couple weeks ago, and this time I predicted the Sun Devils to return to Tempe with the win. But the odds makers in Vegas had Cal as a generally slight favorite at four and a half points, and I got the sense that the slight majority of Sun Devil fans were not too optimistic about this contest as well. Arizona State quarterback Jaden Daniels probably put it best, saying that if you don't believe in us, we believe in ourselves. And I would have to say that at this point, the Sun Devils have surely made believers out of many skeptics that their prospects for the season might be better than many of us initially thought they were. Yes, this team is very much work in progress, but it's delivering more often than not, even if the style points department leaves a lot to be desired. Much like the first three wins for the Sun Devils, I thought that this victory was also definitely fueled by this by the Sun Devil defense, playing one of their best games of the year, shutting out Cal in the second quarter, allowing only three points and 11 yards of total offense to the Golden Bears in the fourth quarter, and actually the only three points the host did score in that frame was off of a lost fumble by Arizona State deep in their territory. So an absolute masterful job by that side of the ball. Now, full disclosure, once Cal lost their starting quarterback, Chase Gabbers, late in the first half to an injury, that definitely did change the dynamic some for the Golden Bears and their offense. But 
when they received the opening kickoff of the second half, uh, they went down the field and down ASU's throat, 2016 Territorial Cup style. In other words, not attempting one pass, rushing the ball 12 straight times, and going on top at that time, 14 to 7. But the Arizona State offense responded uh, right away. More, more on that later. And like I said, the fact that the Arizona State defense did not allow any other Cal touchdowns from the 9-16 mark of the third quarter and beyond truly shows the level of domination that this Arizona State defense was able to achieve last Friday night. And really, great job by this group to rebound from what was a very tough outing against Colorado the week before. It was a unit that came under a lot of criticism, and it was able to respond to those critics, I thought, in a very resounding fashion. I mean, true, the Cal offense was far from being a juggernaut in the Pac-12, but the fact that Arizona State was, was only yielding 245 yards of total offense when the clock showed all zeros, the fact that the Arizona State uh, defense was was able to force two turnovers on downs by Cal in their last uh, two possessions of the contest really says a lot of the type of display that we saw last Friday. And needless to say that it's going to be imperative for this defense the rest of the season to really play at a high level and help some of the shortcomings of this Arizona State offense. So speaking of that Arizona State offense, we definitely did not expect them to explode if you will, in the same manner that they did against Colorado the week before. After all, they were facing one of the toughest defense in the conference. Some will say probably the best one in the entire Pac-12. And ironically, if it wasn't for two missed field goals earlier in the game, Arizona State would actually come very close to matching, at least point-wise, the output that it had against Colorado, a team that was certainly a good few caliber of levels below the Cal defense. We all knew that if Arizona State was going to win, they're going to have to turn another gritty performance, a carbon copy of what we saw at Michigan State a couple of weeks back. And I think actually Arizona State was able to find more success against Cal than it did against Michigan State. And I think Michigan State is a better defensive team anyway, so maybe no big surprise there. But ultimately, Arizona State had a 3 nothing lead at East Lansing at halftime, and here against Cal, they were tied 7-7. So maybe just a little more confidence going into the locker room. But as I mentioned, I thought the offense really showed its teeth, if you will, when they engineered the most crucial drive of the game, which was their first one in the second half. As I mentioned, Cal, after taking the opening kickoff of the second half, marched down the field running the ball 12 times, and I thought that could be definitely a demoralizing moment for the entire ASU team and the offense in specific. So it was definitely beyond imperative for the Sun Devil offense to respond, and they did actually that. Uh, they actually gained possession at midfield after a big kickoff return by wide receiver Brandon Ayuk, which was also aided by a personal foul penalty by the Golden Bears. And now that Arizona State only had to march 50 yards uh, down the field, uh, Eno Benjamin scored one of his three touchdowns to tie the game at 14 apiece. Um, as I mentioned, the fourth quarter was definitely highlighted by the 
utter uh, domination of the Sun Devil defense, but um, also by a very impressive 15-play, 6-minute and 9-second scoring drive where Jaden Daniels passed for 26 yards, ran for 12, Eno Benjamin rushes for 31 yards, scores another touchdown, and that put Arizona State ahead for good in, in, in that contest. But I think what was even more remarkable in that go-ahead scoring drive was the fact that Daniels was sacked in the possession before that, lost a fumble. As I mentioned, Cal converted that to to a field goal and putting three points on the board, regaining the lead. But Jenny Daniels, as he was the entire game, as he was the entire 2019 season to date, was absolutely unfazed, not rattled by the events that took place, and engineered a very, very impressive drive, especially for a true freshman, helping Arizona State, grabbing back the lead, and ultimately winning the game. It definitely wasn't a eye-popping game by Daniels by, by any means. He was 14 out of 24 for 174 yards, but the fact that he rushed it, rushed the ball for career-high 84 yards, was only sacked once, I think uh, definitely played a huge, huge factor in Arizona State's uh, success. No matter who you're playing, especially on the road, if you are able to achieve 191 yards net rushing, you should win that contest. And that's exactly what happened uh, with with Arizona State. Uh, Eno Benjamin, he found a lot more daylight in the second half than he did the first. 68 of his total 100 rushing yards did, did take place in the last in, in the last two quarters. Um, overall, four of his 17 carries went went for first down. So it was definitely a very grinding performance by you know Benjamin. Nothing came easy that that night to say the least. But the fact that uh, he was able, along with the ASU offense, to really withstand every blow that Cal was seemingly delivering to them really says a lot about the re- resiliency of this offense, which much like the Michigan State game, uh, just uses a late fourth-quarter scoring drive to uh, secure a victory and definitely have to be impressed by what you're seeing from that side of the ball. Again, keeping in mind that you have two true freshmen starting on the offensive line and still being able to help both Eno Benjamin and Jaden Daniels run the ball successfully virtually the entire night. And speaking of Eno Benjamin... I know there's been much discussion whether his numbers in 2019 so far are significantly lower than what he put up in 2018. So when you compare the first five games of the 2018 season, I guess you have to put a big asterisk on those stats, keeping in mind that in the fifth game of last season, he achieved his career rushing yard contest against Oregon State, 312 yards and three touchdowns, which put him at 595 yards and five touchdowns after the first five games of the 2018 season. But when you look at the 2019 numbers, they're really not that far off. I mean, he actually has one more touchdown, six. He registered 392 yards, which again, I understand is less than 595, but just keep in mind that 300 12 of those 595 yards came in one game. Uh, you know, Benjamin has two receiving touchdowns after five games in each of those seasons. 
So I think for the folks that are worried about the junior running back not really playing up to par, in danger of having a a much worse, at least statistically wise, campaign in 2019, I just don't think we reached that point at all. And again, the numbers are very similar after the first five games between this season and last. When it comes to ASU's passing game, there's really not a whole lot to talk about here. I think a stingy secondary for the Golden Bears really took its toll on ASU. Uh, I think the only player that really stood out was senior Kyle Williams. He only had four receptions for 26 yards, but two of those receptions did go for first down. And his actually first catch of the night was a crucial fourth down conversion that was part of ASU's scoring drive in the first half. But uh, Brandon Ayuk and Frank Darby, the two other starters, uh, really had a very quiet evening. They combined for three receptions and 44 yards. Uh, I think maybe the brightest light in the passing game was ASU's newcomers. Uh, Rick, Ricky Purcell, the true freshman uh, locally here from Tempe Coronel del Sol, had a career-high 38-yard reception to set up a Nino Benjamin touchdown a few plays later. And redshirt freshman Jordan Porter, who missed several games this year due to, due to a hamstring injury, collected a career high himself with a 28-yard hole. So you would like, obviously, for the ASU starters to play up to their capabilities. You would like for the offensive play calling to do a better job in cracking whatever coverages the opponent will throw at you. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of reason to be encouraged by the reserves like Rick Purcell, like Jordan Porter, like Jordan Curley, who uh, did not register a reception last Friday, but definitely showed a lot of flashes in prior weeks. When you have those players playing well, you really feel good about the future of this wide receiver group. And also in the short term, feel pretty confident that if one of the starters is having an off night, that one of these younger players coming off the bench uh, can really get the job done and pick up at least a good portion of the slack. So this was a game where the defense was challenged by its coaches to play much better than they did against Colorado, and that was certainly achieved in that area. It was also a game where Arizona State needed offense to be more consistent with sustaining drives and with scoring points on successive drives. Didn't really happen that much in the first half, but I think uh, had a much higher success rate in the second half. And again, I just the fact that this offense behind a true freshman quarterback is now able to second road game in a row show up and show up big in the waning moments of the fourth quarter is uh, definitely one aspect that really should excite you about this Arizona State offense. So, as I mentioned, didn't want to spend too much time looking at last week's contest. Wanted to talk about more of some of the positive and negative trends we've seen take place the first five weeks of 2019 season. So we'll delve into that next.
So earlier today, I ran a Twitter poll asking ASU fans to give their midterm grade of the Sun Devils. And by the way, if you have not followed me already on Twitter, please do so at Devils Digest. So 60% of the respondents gave Arizona State a grade of B, of B or B+. 30% gave a grade of A or A-, 9% B-, and 1% C or lower. I guess those are the uh, U of A fans that uh, felt compelled to respond to my poll. But uh, nonetheless, I think at a record of 4-1, and one, you should definitely say that Arizona State has done better than average. And I don't know if the 4-1 and one record really surprises me personally, when I just look at the totality of it. I did pick Arizona State to go 7-5 and five this year, so... It looks like that my prediction may be in jeopardy in a positive way if you're looking at it from an Arizona State fan perspective. But I feel that, and this probably can be said of a lot of teams that are undefeated or just have one loss, that their record could be worse if some of the elements did work against them. And I think Arizona State definitely got some breaks in some of their victories this year, but... As the saying goes, uh, the good teams sometimes make their own luck and make their own breaks. And I think that's what happened with Arizona State, at least in some instances. So really, on both sides of the ball, I think you really have to come to appreciate the character and personality of this team. You have an offense that is very young. There's certainly quite a bit of inexperience at key positions like quarterback, like left tackle, even center, at least for the first two games of the year. And some way, somehow, this group is able to really plow ahead and do just enough, in many cases, to win to win games. On defense, you're seeing a group that was really playing out of their minds for the first three weeks, allowing an average of seven points. Obviously, we're served a, a good slice of humble pie against a very potent Colorado offense, but successfully did shake off that less than average performance against Cal. And as mentioned earlier, the fact that they were able to limit their opponent on their home field, nonetheless, for 11 total yards, that is really impressive. Even though there's some circumstances that obviously helped ASU on that Friday night, I still don't think they should detract at all from what was able to be achieved there. So really, overall, the personality of this team really reflects, I think, the personality of Herm Edwards, that he just knows nothing's going to come easy, and that's fine, as long as the belief and the attitude of this squad does not waver, that you're able to achieve more success than endure failures. And I think Arizona State is just a perfect example of that theory. As head coach Herm Edwards always loves to remind us, 29 freshmen and retro freshman players have took to the field at one point or another during the 2019 season. And that is a number that I think is unheard of in the history of college football, let alone having that high number of first-year players see game action and still be able to achieve a 4-1 record. It is to say that this is a huge recruiting tool for the 2020 class and beyond. A lot of coaching staffs that can 
look a recruiter in the eye and say, we definitely play the best players, we definitely have a chance to play early, and not always mean those words. But in Arizona State's case, they can show one receipt after another, proving their mantra that the best players will indeed play, regardless of how young they are. So I think that is something that can definitely help Arizona State quite a bit in continuing to build this program. And I also think it gives these young players a lot of confidence. And instead of them riding on the bench, if you will, for most, if not an entire 2019 season, they're able to taste game action. And that makes them a much better play, whether it's later on in the 2019 season or just preparing them for a very productive 2020 campaign. So that is definitely another aspect, another trend that has been very prevalent with the 2019 Sun Devils and one that I think is really helping them both in the short term and the long term. And it is some of those younger players that have really turned heads in the first five weeks of the year. That discussion obviously starts and probably finishes with quarterback Jenny Daniels. So much, so many expectations, so much pressure put on this young man to be a starter in his first year of college football. And I think that the poise, the pocket presence, traits that we've been talking about seems like every week with them just continue to be Daniel's biggest allies. I mean, just try to fathom the fact that you had a true freshman quarterback lead his team into not one, but two road victories against ranked teams barely through the midpoint way of the season. That is something that really boggles the mind. But again, I just think the mental makeup of Jaden Daniels is what helps him achieve feats that for some seemed impossible or at least improbable. And to see Jaden Daniels uh, do that almost on a weekly basis, I think has been maybe to some a pleasant surprise, but nonetheless, just a huge staple of this offense. To me, it's so ironic how Jaden Daniels, every time I interviewed him, does not want to be known as a dual threat quarterback, even though he's ranked number two in the nation in the 2019 class in that category, really wants to be known and perhaps even respected as a very competent pocket passer. And obviously the numbers are there, averaging just under 250 yards passing a game, which is fifth in the Pac-12, a very talent-rich conference when it comes to quarterbacks. That is definitely uh, something that is eye-popping, to say the least. But the fact that in the two biggest wins of the year at Michigan State and at Cal, he was able to run the ball so often, so successfully, especially in the fourth quarter where you think the pressure would get to him, I think is really a remarkable sight to behold for uh, any any person that follows the program. And Daniels is not the only true freshman on offense that has really been impressive with their performance uh, thus far. Not one, but two true freshmen starting on the offensive line. Again, that is something you simply do not see in college football, no matter how talented an offensive lineman is as a freshman. In many cases, they're still going to redshirt, still take their time learning the ropes. But with Arizona State out of necessity, they had to throw Ladarius Henderson at left tackle. 
doing a fine job protecting Jaden Daniels' blindside. You have Donovan West, a true freshman that started the first two games at center, then slides to right tackle and has been absolutely uh, instrumental in Arizona State's success on the ground the last few weeks over here. So those are two other aspects, part of a larger trend, as I mentioned, of playing a lot of freshmen early in the season. These are two freshmen that have really not only played, but played very, very well and have been a big part of Arizona State's offensive success. And we talked earlier about the freshman wide receivers, Ricky Purcell, Jordan Curley, Jordan Porter, really flashing here and there throughout the first five weeks and showing what a bright future there is at the wide receiver position now for the Sun Devils. And I think these wide receivers before 2019 is all said and done do have a chance to be legitimate contributors to the Arizona State passing game and the offense as a whole. We figured that uh, 2019 was going to feature a much better defense that we saw in 2018 and not that that version of that unit was lacking by any means. But you look right now throughout five games, Arizona State ranks third in the Pac-12 in scoring defense, tight for 10th nationally. Uh, total defense and rush defense is also third in the Pac-12 and is 39th and 27th respectively in those categories. Uh, in passing defense, it's uh, fourth in the Pac-12, only 68th uh, in the nation. But again, these are numbers that are definitely an improvement over last year. The scoring defense is definitely a vast improvement over 2018. So I think there's definitely a lot to be encouraged with the way this ASU defense played. Again, they laid quite the egg against Colorado, and you can contend that that Buffalo offense is one that can make even a stout defense like Arizona State look bad. But give credit for Arizona State for playing very tough on that side of the ball the other four contests of the, of the 2019 season. And again, really delivering, I thought, on the promise that a very strong foundation was established in 2018 and that the Sun Devils are able to certainly build on that foundation and take their performance to a higher level this year. So on the other side of the ledger, what are some of the trouble spots, if not warning signs, that have manifested themselves in the first five games and are aspects that have the potential to be adversely impact for the Sun Devils later in the year? One thing we talked about a lot, both on the podcast and also on my website, devilsdigest.com, is the desire of the Arizona State staff to develop a capable and competent number two running back that can spell Eno Benjamin. But you look at the disparity of the carries, and it really is striking. Eno Benjamin has 106 carries throughout five games. I don't think that number is off the charts or anything like that. But the fact that the running back with the second highest amount of carries is Isaiah Floyd with 11, basically 10% of what Eno Benjamin is registering so far. That has to be an area of concern. If nothing else, a huge disappointment for the coaching staff who really wanted to develop that number two running back. And I guess in part circumstances throughout the first five games may did not allow Eno Benjamin's backup to really accumulate 
that many carries on any given week. But nonetheless, uh, disappointing to see that, you know, Benjamin once again is carrying such a huge load. And by the way, in case you're curious, uh, Jaden Daniels, the quarterback, has 48 carries so far throughout five games. So a number that you'd probably be happier to see if Isaiah Floyd or A.J. Carter, the two other running backs, would have that number attached to their name. But sure enough, it is Jaden Daniels that has uh, that figure. Needless to say that some of the runs that Daniels took place in were crucial, if not game-winning, plays. But at the same time, you don't want to see too much pressure being put on Nino Benjamin. And right now, if these numbers continue in that pace, that's exactly what we're going to see from here on out in the 2019 season. When it comes to the passing game, I know Arizona State wanted to get the tight ends more involved. And between uh, Curtis Hodges, Nolan Matthews, and Tommy Hudson, we see a, com- a combined total of six receptions through five games. Definitely not the numbers that you wanted to see from a group that the coaching staff really wanted to bring to the forefront when it comes to Arizona State's passing game. Wide receiver Frank Darby only with eight receptions throughout five games. Just as a matter of comparison, running back you know, Benjamin has 13. Uh, his fellow wide receiver Kyle Williams has 19. So very disappointing number for Frank Darby. And we've heard so many times that the junior was really the one-trick pony, a deep threat for the Sun Devils and nothing else. And I know as much as Frank Darby wanted to shed that image, as much as the coaches wanted to incorporate Frank Darby in a wider spectrum of routes, that simply has not happened. And really, eight receptions through five games, those are definitely not the numbers I expected to see from Frank Darby. Sometimes the ball is overthrown. Sometimes he drops the ball. I understand that all that are elements of the game that just seem to be unavoidable at times. But I still feel that Frank Darby should have shown everyone, including himself, much more than he has in the first five games. Really curious to see what the rest of 2019 entails in terms of his production. So we mentioned earlier the impressive defensive numbers that Arizona State was able to put up, but at the same time, I think there are some troublesome stats for this side of the ball that really need to be corrected. I would say, first and foremost, is the number of interceptions. Arizona State only has two interceptions on the year. Uh, granted, opponents only be able to register one through the same stretch, but this was a unit that defense coordinator Danny Gonzalez figured would have just under 20 interceptions for the season. And I don't think that they'll be able to come anywhere close to that, especially after five games already played. So that is definitely one aspect of the defense that is disappointing. Uh, it also only has 10 sacks throughout five games. I mean, not a horrible number because it does average out to two sacks a contest. But when you keep in mind that opponents have registered 13 sacks so far against Arizona State, uh, that maybe puts a little more pressure on the Arizona State defensive line to perform at a higher level. 
When it comes to special teams, I probably should have mentioned earlier the fine play of punter Michael Turk. Obviously, nobody expected him to uh, average over 60 yards like he did in the first game of the year. But sitting here right now with averaging 48 yards a punt, having 12 of his 22 punts land inside the 20-yard line, 10 of the 22 be a 50 yards or more, uh, that is uh, definitely a good sign for the rest of 2019 to have such a weapon in Turk. Field goal kicking and kickoffs have definitely been an adventure to some extent. As we know, uh, junior Brandon Reese, who was slated to be the starter for the third year in a row, uh, suffered a, a upper leg injury that has prevented him from playing so far in 2019. His backup, Chris Zendayas, started the season in very impressive fashion and at one point has converted all eight of his field goal attempts, but overall for the first five games is now 10 of 13, still kicking an 80% clip, so no shame over there. But it's become evident that when it comes to Longer field goals of 45 yards or 50 yards that Zendayas is most likely not a reliable option. And that can definitely be an issue going forward if Reese is still going to be sidelined for a while. But I feel that Reese's absence is even felt much more in the kickoff department where Josh Plaster, a walk-on, has only had five touchbacks out of his 24 kickoffs. And it seems as if opponents on a regular basis are getting pretty good field position because of that predicament of the Arizona State special team. So again, maybe not an aspect that has hurt the Sun Devils all that much so far, but definitely something you'd like to see be corrected one way or another for the rest of the 2019 season. I'm going to offer my final thoughts about what transpired up until now, and how do I see the rest of the 2019 season unfolding? But as mentioned in the intro, I uh, just wanted to uh, take advantage of the bye week and go off on a little tangent over here and talk about one of the hottest topics right now in all of college sports. And for the last segment of the Devil's Junkies podcast, uh, a little historic moment over here. My first ever guest on the podcast. This is somebody that has been with me in the trenches since 2001 as a moderator of the devilsitis.com website. He's also a three-time Sun Devil alum. But the main reason why I invited my next guest to join the podcast is because he's an associate dean at the uh, ASU Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law He's also the lead administrator of the Sports Law and Business Program. And with the new California state law that uh, just got enacted uh, today, where starting in 2023, students uh, that go to attend colleges in that state will be able to earn money off their likeness, I wanted to invite 
uh, Eric, Eric Minkus, you probably know him as uh, Big E on the message board, uh, to uh, render uh, his opinion on this new law, what kind of implications it may or may not have, how does he feel the NCAA is going to fight back on this law, and just everything that's uh, associated with this uh, historic moment in college sports. Uh, Eric, how are you doing? I'm good. Oh, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. My, my pleasure. So we know this law was uh, coming down the pike uh, for months now, but now that it became official, what was what were your, some of your first uh, reactions just from a strictly legal point as to what the real implications of this law can be short-term and long-term? Sure. Uh, so when I saw today that it got signed. I mean, I knew that the legislature had passed it. I wasn't sure if the, government, if the governor would uh, potentially kind of wait or succumb to some of the NCAA's type of pressure, but uh, he didn't, and even signed it, I guess, on a on a show with uh, LeBron James, from what I'm reading, so that yeah. and he made a production out of it. Uh, but the first thing I needed to do, I guess, which I did a lot of today, was go and actually read what it says, because you can only really trust sort of summaries of the law so much. So I, I went in and I actually read it, and I, I was actually really surprised at how short it is uh, for something that is going to change the landscape of college athletics uh, in the state of California and all of the universities there, and there are many who participate in NCAA sports. Um, it, it's, it's surprisingly short. There's really only two sections of the bill. The first section really just says we, the legislature, are going to keep an eye on what the NCAA's uh, uh, sort of athlete pay committee is going to do, and, and maybe we'll change this law. That's actually the first uh, line in the law. So it kind of gives tips their hand a little bit in my mind that they're looking uh, to play the long-term game here. That's also why it doesn't go into effect until 2023. I think they're trying to put pressure on the NCAA. Uh, and then the second section goes into forbidding their universities in California from enforcing NCAA rules, essentially, uh, having to do with making money off what, what uh, is formerly the name, image, and likeness uh, for these athletes to be able to make some money on the side. And so, you know, was I surprised? Not really. Uh, it seems like California is really drawing a line in the sand here and wants to be seen as the instigator behind the change in the NCAA. And I think many of us have known that the NCAA needs to he needs to make changes. There's they're you know working oftentimes with old laws and with a mindset that is very, in my mind, uh, not innovative. It's the opposite of ASU. <laughs> uh, they're they're still living in the 70s and 80s in a lot of ways. So. Lots needs to get changed. Um, I'm not sure that what California has done here, at least in its current form, is the right change. But like I said, I, I actually think that the way this law is written now, if it actually gets implemented, would not be in the form. Uh, well, it'll be it'll be much different by the time it actually goes into effect than it is today. Yeah, and, and I think one thing that you and I can probably agree on, and even people that oppose this law. Uh, in a, in a very strong way, would have to agree that, and I don't mean to quote my own tweet over here, but you know, it's all fine and dandy that the NCAA, in their official statement, agreed that changes are needed to continue to support student athletes, but their unwillingness to really react to that landscape 
is what caused California and maybe some other states in the near future to, to take action. So, I mean, do you also agree that the NCAA basically refusing to take any kind of action, even to increase a monthly stipend of an FPS generating sport, is why we arrived uh, at this conclusion, which is, in other words, the new California state law? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, you know, the NCAA moves at a glacial pace, it seems. I know that, you know, a few years back, who knows how many now, but they changed to full cost of attendance, and so that was able to give a little bit of a boost uh, to student-athletes. But, you know, when you see numbers like billions and billions of dollars being made on the uh, NCAA tournament and, you know, lots of money made in the uh, bowl championship series for the schools and all of that, it's it's hard to not see more of that trickle down to the athletes that are actually on the field. But the flip, the flip side of that is there's also, you know, there's a Title IX aspect to a lot of that. One of the, one of the things that the California rule does that is very interesting is it kind of allows, uh, would allow athletes to work directly with private industry which takes the Title IX argument out of it. But with, if, the, if the money's going through the university in some for, sort of way, which is the way it has done up until recently, now you have Title, Title IX uh, arguments and impacts where uh, you can't favor really one sport over another uh, if there are Title IX aspects to it. So anyway, it, it's, it's a really interesting sort of market-based approach, which uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of like but there's also lots of downstream impacts that may or may not happen. I know there's a lot of people who've been for this type of thing for a long time out there that are giving their opinions today saying, oh, don't worry about it. All the sort of apocalyptic stuff about uh, people just buying off recruits and stuff, that won't happen. People will realize it's a bad uh, investment. And I guess I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a status quo person, but I'm certainly not a someone who wants to just have the market, which is not a rational market. It's a fan market out there uh, just buying players. You know, it doesn't, you know, the law in California doesn't make any sort of distinction between future student-athletes and current student-athletes for the name, image, and likeness stuff. So, you know, there's ways you could buy recruits, and there's a whole, there's a whole group of people out there thinking this will really mean that people get paid as a recruit coming in, and then you transfer and you get paid there. And so there's just lots of different aspects here that you know this law doesn't even address at all, which is why, in my mind, uh, the current form is not what it would be if it actually goes into effect in 2023. I mean, you talked about the state of California drawing a line in the sand. Where, where do you think the NCAA is going to draw the line in the sand? I mean, do you think that it's really going to maintain their current position saying, you know, we don't care what the state of California has done. We're not paying uh, student athletes one more red cent, even if it's going to be adjusted for cost of living, which I don't feel it's fully adjusted right now anyway, even though they tried to make some improvements. But do you feel the NCAA takes that route or the NCAA just counters with some kind of measure of their own, which obviously wouldn't go as far as the California measure but at least a measure that, like you said, maybe would cause California to back down because maybe, because like you said, this law that they enacted is really trying to almost play a game of chicken with the NCAA. And if the NCAA does take some kind of action, 
on their behalf, and I guess action that California would deem to be acceptable, then would you see this California law just be stricken down as fast as it was enacted? So uh, I think the NCAA is going to do two things. Number one, they already have this committee that's looking at uh, these types of issues uh, that is actually referred to in Section 1A of the California uh, Senate Bill 206 that is out there trying to analyze all this and is supposed to be giving a report. I don't know if it's later this year or early next year, but we're supposed to get something fairly soon. So I think the NCAA is going to take a step in this direction. But I also anticipate that they're all, they're going to sue uh, and try and get this law deemed unconstitutional. Uh, I'm not I'm not a constitutional lawyer, uh, but they've got a pretty good track record of winning. The NCAA does, and I think their strongest argument is: look, you this is the NCAA is an organization that schools join voluntarily. Nobody's forcing you to be in this. California, your schools are part of this, and why can we not enforce the rules that your schools agreed to? adhere to when they joined our group. And I think that's going to be their argument. It could be some sort of a freedom of speech, freedom of association. Um, but I think they're going to sue. The NCAA seems to always sue. But I also think they're going to take some steps towards the direction that California would want them to take. I'm also relatively confident, or really confident, actually, that on their own, the NCAA isn't going to get nearly as far as states like California would want them to go on this topic. Yeah. So, so they, just, they just, yeah, they go to the mat on, you know, they will, they will go to the mat on amateurism and student athlete issues. Like that, that amateurism is really important. That mm -hmm. NCAA has always gone to the mat on that. I don't anticipate this to be different. Mm -hmm. So, so last question. I mean, just give me, just you know, your personal opinion, and not to put you on the spot. Do you feel that there should be some kind of meeting, meeting of a happy medium, where you know? student athletes get paid more than they do right now but but probably don't go as far as getting paid as the state of california would allow them to so every you know you know tom tom dick and harry can basically just pay you know any given usc or ucla football basketball player as much money as they want i mean do you feel that in reality there'll be some kind of like i said a happy medium where student athletes get paid more than they do now, but just don't get paid as much as the state of California would suggest in this brand new law? Yeah, I, I think that's that's got to be right. Um, they're going to, it'll get to some point where student athletes will be able to get paid more than they are now, where they'll be able to live, you know, fairly comfortably uh, as student athletes, where they're not having to scrape by and, and barely make rent and those things that you hear stories about. Mm -hmm. But, I, I don't anticipate that the uh, you know that the schools, for example, here, here's a here's a good example. The way the California law is written, you can't sign deals that conflict with your with your uh, team's deals. However, your team's deals only apply when you're doing your team things. So you could imagine a scenario where ASU has a really good basketball player and Nike signs that person to walk around campus when they're not at practice in <laughs> Nikes and to promote Nikes while the while when they're playing in basketball. So I, I can't imagine that, that schools are going to do to allow that type of thing to happen. So there's gonna be some pushback on this. Uh, and I also just from the history of the NCAA can't see I can't imagine that there's going to be not be an outcry 
if certain football and basketball players are making uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in, in weird scenarios with shoe companies and things, um, while uh, you know soccer and water polo players aren't making much. I could, I could see there being some sort of a pool deal where maybe the football and basketball players get a little bit more, but I think that there's going to be a lot more of a push to share a lot of that. Because NCAA has never been comfortable with uh, well, other than in, you know, wins and losses with the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. Well, you know, definitely a, a fascinating topic uh, for any college sports fan out there. And uh, as I mentioned, as uh, the lead administrator of uh, ASU Sports Law and Business Program, definitely wanted to get uh, your perspective. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Eric, and uh, congratulations on being the first guest of the Devil's Junkies podcast. That's right, man. It's been we've been together a long time. I'm honored to be the very first guest on this podcast. That's great. Uh, I know it's all mine. Thanks so much, Eric. Have a good one. All right, thanks, Ed. So it turns out that wasn't our last segment. I wanted to offer some final thoughts on what took place so far in the first five weeks and how to project the rest of the season for the Sun Devils. So I think by and large, there's a lot to be encouraged by what we saw from Arizona State on both sides of the ball. As I laid out, there definitely are some issues that did not go away after five weeks and issues that definitely have to be corrected or at least negated slash suppressed as much as they can as ASU enters the home stretch of the 2019 season. But I know that there might be some element of live by the sword, die by the sword, and all these close losses where Arizona State is just about able to get over their opponent is something that can and perhaps will bite them down the road. But at the same time, the resiliency that this team is showing has definitely been really impressive. And again, with the youth of this team, I would say even unexpected to some extent. So I think that's something that you can take away from what you saw so far from the Sun Devils. So this is a trait that I know drives Sun Devil fans up the wall, but this is a trait that Arizona State can still exhibit each and every week, then it definitely puts itself in a very good position to improve over their 7-6 and six record from last year. Gives them a chance to perhaps even win the Pac-12 South, a championship that eluded them last season. And needless to say, I think also improve the quality of recruits that can land in this 2020 class. A poll that I conducted on Twitter asking Sun Devil fans how they felt about ASU's 4-1 mark to date 49 of them said it met their expectations. 45 of them were actually surprised, and only 6% were disappointed. So I think that the fans, by and large, are pleased with what they saw right now. 
again, even though it was definitely done the hard way and definitely at times showcased just as much shortcomings as it did strengths, but Arizona State, I feel, is on a good course over here to have a better year than they did in 2018. My prediction for 2019 of a regular season record of 7-5 and five is obviously very much in jeopardy right now. And yes, I do say jeopardy in a very sarcastic tone. A very interesting home matchup with Washington State awaits the Sun Devils right after the bye week on Saturday October 12th, the Cougars have lost two games in a row, absolutely getting ripped to shreds in the media by their head coach, Mike Leach. And you wonder if Arizona State is really catching this opponent at a very good time, or maybe the bye week allows Washington State to clean up whatever they need to address and actually come into that contest as a much better team than they displayed the last couple of weeks. So that's really interesting. And after that game against Washington State, uh, assuming Arizona State wins this game, which, which I think they will, a huge Pac-12 South matchup in Salt Lake City against Utah, a game we thought last year would have very significant implications on who won the Pac-12 South. And even though Arizona State did handle Utah to the tune of 38-20 in Tempe, that ended up being all for naught as Arizona State was not able to capitalize on that head-to-head win. So you just kind of wonder, will 2019 be the same scenario where the winner of that contest would seem very significant at the moment to actually capture the Pac-12 South? Or because there'll be several games to be played after that contest, that that result can ultimately have much less impact than initially believed. So that's another contest Arizona State has in the month of October. And lastly, a road game at UCLA, a team that might be a little too hard to figure out right now with their helter-skelter type of results in the last couple of weeks. But I think a game that would definitely go in the winnable column, if you will, for Arizona State. So good chance over here in the month of October, just three games played during that month for Arizona State to further their position in the Pac-12 South, make a more serious claim to win that division. And I think that by and large, what they showed for the first five games of 2019 does provide a pretty solid building block that they can draw upon as they're entering the last seven games of the 2019 season. So definitely going to be some interesting contest uh, coming up over here for Arizona State. And uh, we will talk to you next after that game against Washington State, which is uh, Saturday, October 12th. Don't forget an early kickoff of uh, 1230 in the afternoon, which I know has uh, not pleased uh, many of the Sun Devil Nation, but we'll see what the weather ends up being that afternoon and maybe ends up working in Arizona State's advantage if it is a toasty day in Tempe. So thank you so much for, for tuning in to, to this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. As always, if you're not a member of my website, devilsitis.com, I would encourage you to please uh, sign up today, get much more of my insight uh, in the articles on our front page, as well as my post in our premium message board, Devil's Huddle, 
So make sure that you check that out if you haven't already. Thanks again to my first ever guest on the podcast, Eric Minkus, who discussed the new California state law, which allows student athletes to earn money on the likeness. That's definitely a storyline that'll be very interesting to follow in the months to come. So thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Devil's Junkies podcast. Have a great week. I was living in a devil town. Didn't know it was a devil town Oh Lord, it really brings me down About the devil town All my friends were vampires Didn't know they were vampires Turns out I was a vampire myself Devil Town Living in the devil town, the day in